Hello, hello. See some new faces out there. Uh, you're not a new face, Giannis. You're almost as old of a face as I am here. Well, I'm excited to be here. Are you guys excited? Awake. It's cold outside. It's a little warm in here now. The heaters are on. That's kind of not always the case in Church at Five. Sometimes they forget about us and the heaters are off, so don't get too cozy and fall asleep. So that text we just read, I don't know if you noticed, but it's, it's quite dense. It has a lot of really big terms in it and a lot of really big statements. And actually, arguably, I don't know, you can argue with me after the service, but I, I think this might be one of the most dense passages of the New Testament that's devoted solely to the topic and purpose of shedding light on the true and full nature of Jesus Christ. It's a lot about Jesus there and who he is and the full nature of Christ. It's a really powerful passage. And actually, commonly, this passage was, is kind of considered a hymn and uh, a hymn or praise of Jesus Christ or to Jesus Christ, seeing him both as Lord over all creation. We kind of see the text broken into two pieces, those of you who are really paying attention. Uh, the, the text kind of has the first three verses where we really see Jesus as, as creator and, and kind of Lord of creation and over all things and before all things. And then the second half, we also see him as Lord over our personal redemption as sinners, right? He's the head of the church, and we see his redemption through the cross. And this may have actually been a well-known hymn, uh, church tradition kind of dictates that uh, it might have been a hymn that was kind of spoken and a way for people to remember who Christ was, remember the power that he holds and remember his true and full nature as Jesus Christ, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so uh, it's a good thing to actually to memorize that passage and, and to kind of have it something as something in your heart so we can remember this, the true identity of who he is. But there's, there's actually no proof whether that's true or not, if this was a hymn, because if it was, then it was kind of like maybe he did a little copy and paste and just kind of put this into uh, the, the letter. But either way, it's a really good um, and important passage, and again, a very dense passage on the nature and identity of the person of Jesus Christ. And what we can see clearly is this kind of powerful wording and phrasing used to depict him. Who is Jesus, is the question that it wants to answer. Let me turn the brightness on this thing up so I can actually see what I'm reading. Um, we know Jesus as this, as Jesus, the one who loves us. Jesus loves you. You might have heard that, even if you've never been to church before. But who is Jesus, as when we look at this text? We think of him, especially here in the West, in Western culture, here in... Europe and in the States, often only in the terms of how he directly relates to us, right? What he's done for me personally, for my personal salvation, what he wants to do for me in my life, what his plan for me is, and it's kind of this really personal aspect, and, uh, and that's a really important aspect. Uh, it's kind of actually, at least in my very limited experience in, in kind of Eastern cultures, in the few times that I've been into the East, uh, that it's actually quite the opposite. And uh, they tend to see God in this sense of, of his greatness, and the personal aspect is kind of weird. But we tend to go the other way here, and so I think it's important to counter our culture 
and think about him beyond just the personal. Now, that's not to say that he isn't personal. He is our personal savior. He loves each and every one of us individually and uniquely for our, who we are. He accepts us as we are. And I love what John 10:3 says, that he calls us, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So this is just, there is this very personal nature to the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. But in the midst of that, again, being counterculture, we may, we may forget, we may forget who he really is beyond us, beyond our, that personal interaction that we have with him. That he is, and that he was, and that he will always be. He stands far beyond us, far outside of us. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be focusing on seeing Jesus in the fullness of his majesty as best we can in three weeks. We're going to use this text kind of as a springboard for that for the next three weeks, looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at Christ creator, Christ is king, and Christ our savior or redeemer. I haven't decided yet, but one of those two titles. Today we're focusing on the first half of this passage in verse 15 through 17, the first three verses, seeing Christ as creator. Something that I think often doesn't click in our minds immediately when we think of Jesus. That he is also creator God, right? He's a part of the Godhead, the Trinity. So he's also creator and maker and author of all things. And as such, he is Lord over all things. And then next week, we're going to have our worship night. And the title of our worship night is Christ is King. And so we're going to use this, this evening to, be, to focus our worship through song, singing together collectively, that, and looking at Christ as our King, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're going to take communion together and, and really celebrate the unity we have in this kingdom we've been brought into and seeing him as our King. And then finally, in our third week, looking at this text, we'll finish off by focusing on the, the second half in verse 18 through 20, where we see this kind of, it uses the word, I, I'm looking at the ESV because that's what's on the screen. She read the NIV, but uh, the ESV uses this word preeminent Christ, meaning there is nothing that sits above him. He is preeminent. He is above all other things. And yet, this great creator that we're going to be looking at today, this king of kings, this our God is also the head of the church. And it is through him, or it is through him that we are reconciled to him by his blood on the cross. And that's what we'll look at in our third week. So let's actually start by rereading verses uh, 15 through 17, which is going to be our focus for today. And I'll be reading, I'll read the ESV, um, because that's what I'm going to be quoting from throughout the, tech, the message, so you're with me on it. So, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a very powerful passage. This is an image of the infinite 
and the majestic and the powerful nature of Jesus Christ. We see this, we know this loving Savior. I hope you know him as a loving Savior, which he is. But he is also this majestic, powerful creator. And my hope today is that as we go through these kind of he is statements, we have all these kind of powerful that, you know, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who's created through him and by him and for him all things were created. That as we go through these, I I hope that you will all have a better glimpse of just how great our Lord and Savior really is. How powerful he really is. And so the next time that you're struggling or having a problem or maybe going through a rough season, you'll remember that he, he's not just some demigod or some kind of creature created by God. He is God and all-powerful, and he has, he has what it takes to help you and to give you the strength and the grace and the joy amidst anything that you're, you're struggling with. That's what I find really helpful when remembering who Christ really is. And that's what I hope for you today. So to give kind of a short summary of this kind of second half of the passage that we looked at, Jesus Christ is Lord of all creation. Not only is he the maker of it all, but he reigns over it. He's Lord over it. And in fact, everything is kept and held together by him. Also, a very powerful image, which we'll get to in a bit. First, we see this, how it begins. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. What's that about? Invisible God. Well, that seems obvious. I don't know. You can stare into the sky. You can use some binoculars, telescope. You're probably not going to see God physically with your naked eye. So what does this really mean? I think when we look at the context and the other ways that this word is used, it can also mean unknown. So what I see here is that he's also pointing out that he is the unknowable God. So Jesus is the image of the unknowable God. That's a powerful thing to think about. That we, no matter how hard we try, are never going to be able to fully wrap our fairly small, puny human brains fully around an infinite God. We can seek him, and we can certainly know so much about him through his word as we seek him in prayer. We can know God in, that, in, a, in a lot of ways. But when we're talking about God in his fullness, in his full nature, God, creator God, I'm positive that if we, even, if we could even hold a small percentage of the full nature of God into our minds, they would literally explode. It would just be done. Pieces everywhere. Be really dramatic. You know, I mean, I was kind of uh, watching some math videos and I'm not into math, and I don't know much about it, so you can talk to some of our mathematicians here in the room. But when, we th- when, when the people talk about infinite, infinity, infinity, and just in the simplest form of whole numbers, it's really hard for, to wrap your brain around how big infin- like an infinite number is. 
Not even getting into all of these kind of theories and concepts about higher levels of infinity and that there's infinite infinities. So just try to think about that for a moment. And that's just numbers. How much more can we ever hope to know or relate to an infinite God who's not just infinite in digits, but infinite in every aspect, infinitely infinite? Makes my brain hurt a little bit. Then we come to this. This great, infinite, unknowable God who's just so unfathomably big that Jesus is the image of this invisible God. The image of this unknowable God. That Greek word, therefore, image, can be used in, in two, in, or is used in two main ways during that time period. It can mean likeness, which is to say like in a mirror. When I look into the mirror, I see my likeness. But it's not physically me. There's not, when I look in a mirror, I'm not suddenly duplicated and there's two of me. That would be crazy. There would be so many of me. It's just my likeness. The other meaning, and the more likely use or, or meaning here, is manifestation. It's more than just a reflection, just an image of something. It's the fully revealed nature of that being. In this context, it's clear this is what it means. And Jesus is the image, the manifestation of the unknowable God. We can know God. We can see him, but only through relationship to Jesus Christ. So we see the infinite come back down to the personal. What a powerful concept to try and wrap our brains around. John 14, 9 says, whoever has seen me, Jesus says this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So then how can you say, show us the Father? And this is, he was talking to Philip who was kind of wanting proof. He's like, hey, just show us the Father. You know, then it'll be a little bit easier for us to believe Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. If you know Jesus, you know God. And here I'm already to, at this point, we're just right in the beginning of the text, and it, it just starts to fill me with awe and wonder, especially at God's plan for salvation, seeing it come back down to us in this personal way that Jesus is not a likeness of God, right? It's not like talking to someone on a video chat. That picture is not really that person, right? It's just an image of them. It's just their likeness that you're looking at. Even if you had a really high-tech hologram of somebody, it's still just their likeness. It doesn't contain their true nature in itself, right? It's just an image. That's not what Jesus is to God. Jesus is God become flesh, so that not only can we know the unknowable God through him, but it also means that the infinite God can relate to our mortal selves. He can relate to us as well. He knows pain and suffering and loss and joy and pleasure and happiness. He's experienced them. He knows what it is to be human. So that 
we may truly know the infinite God through Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, the manifestation of God, and also be known by him in a real way. Next we see that he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now this is most certainly not meant to be read or to be understood in a physical sense or in physical terms that he is the firstborn of all creation. As in to say that Jesus was created. To say that Jesus had a point of origin or creation is heresy. And this was actually a common heresy of the time that Paul is going to also kind of address a little bit more in the rest of this letter. It was a common heresy of the time that Jesus was kind of one of many beings that were created by God. So there was this kind of idea that there is, there is this God and that he kind of, actually that he created this creature, that created this creature, that created this creature, and down the line, Jesus was created at some point. And this, of course, cannot be so when all things are in fact created by him. Without, ex- without exception. By him and through him, all things were created. And I think Paul is also trying to address this heresy. Jesus Christ has always been. He is eternal and has existed eternally as a person of the Trinity. Right, The Father, Son, and Spirit. These three persons in one God have existed without end. What Paul is depicting here is rather with this kind of firstborn is rather that Jesus is kind of the inheritor of all creation. And he's using this as a more as an image, which I'll explain in a second. Meaning what I mean by that is like that he has has the rights, the privileges of a firstborn son. He has the full rights to sovereign reign over all creation. Now, we do need to be careful with that terminology, and I believe that Paul is trying to emphasize that Jesus has supremacy and rank in all of creation. There is nobody above him. And he's going to use that word preeminent later in the second half of the text. But it's not to be taken to mean that Jesus, as firstborn, is in any way, shape, or form less than God. He is not under him in any way, shape, or form. He is completely equal to God. He is, in fact, one with God and the full manifestation of God. Paul's using this imagery, I believe, because it was it was a bit of a it was common terminology uh, to show Jesus as in order so that he could show Jesus as fully God and Lord over all things. And I read recently, actually, that ancient uh, rabbis would also refer to Yahweh, so it's Old Testament God, Yahweh himself as firstborn of the world. And they were, of course, not implying that he was, had a point of origin, or that he was physically born. And this is, so we see that kind of that same connection with Yahweh, with God. But we also see this, this term used in Psalm 89.27, similar wording, and referring to what would the promised Messiah to come. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this would have been pretty common knowledge, at least amongst the Jews. 
and uh, known as referring to the promised Messiah. So Paul is kind of trying, or tying rather, all of these things in together, tying these two images in together to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the firstborn of all creation, but he is also tied in with God, Yahweh. So he is both God and creator Yahweh as well as the promised Messiah. They are one and the same. I think that's the image he's trying to draw in with using this term, firstborn of all creation. Then he goes on to say that all things were created. I'm going to put all of these together. That's kind of split out through the text that all things were created by him. It says in the beginning and then it says through him later and finally it ends with and for him. So we'll be looking at all three of those. Now, when we look at that, that all things were created by him and through him, Nothing's excluded, right? There is no thing that has ever existed or ever will exist or ever can possibly exist that Jesus Christ did not play a role in the creation of by his power, through his will, and ultimately for his glory. That's what we see here by by him, through him, and for him. In verse 16, with this kind of interesting thing that he puts together. It says that all things created, kind of putting that, tying that out in the beginning, so all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So we see, again, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Kind of doesn't really leave much left. It seems to cover every aspect of all of creation, both known and unknown. Everything we can see or know and everything that we can't see and everything that we don't know about yet in our own known universe, he is the creator of it. Visible and invisible. That means every star, all the planets, the moons, and everything that makes up our universe that we know of yet or so far. That means the depths, the mysteries of the ocean, all the plants, all the animals, the complexities of our human body, all the wonders and beauties of this earth and the universe around us. He is creator of it all. It was all created through him, by him, and for him. I love this. The That's just the visible, though. I mean, when it gets to the invisible, it really starts to kind of make you think what all he might be talking about there. Certainly, I do think he is talking about the spiritual realm, the things that we can't see. The Bible says there that exist. But uh, when, it, when we think about the invisible, I think first we have to think about, it also includes everything that we don't know about yet. All of the things that we haven't seen yet, haven't discovered, all of the discoveries in science that we just haven't, we don't know about yet. There's so many things we just don't know the answers to yet. And some of them we'll never be able to fully grasp the answers of. And yet God is in control. Christ is in control. Christ is the one who put those things in place. I'm personally really fascinated by things in like the microverse which are invisible to the eye and yet whole worlds in themselves. I mean if you you can take literally a drop of water from a muddy puddle and it's just teeming with life. How amazing is that? These are invisible. We can't see them and yet 
Christ is still the creator. Every single thing. And when we talk about the invisible, I think it's also interesting to point out the, the, the abstract. For instance, consciousness. Consciousness is so fascinating to me that I can look at you right in the, right in the face. I can even touch you and have no idea what you're thinking. And yet what we're thinking is such a huge part of our identity, our consciousness, something that we actually know very little about. It's the invisible. Christ is the creator of consciousness. He knows what you're thinking. That should scare some of you. No. Right now he knows what you're thinking. He knows what we're thinking. He created consciousness. He's still the author of that as well. We could get into a lot of other things. I know there's a lot more intelligent minds than mine in this room that could probably really boggle us with interesting facts. The point is that Christ is creator of everything, visible and invisible. And something I find interesting here is that he, of all of the things that he could have used as an example, all of the beauty of nature or whatever that he could have used, he points instead to thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So what's that about? Why, why use that when we're talking about God or Christ as creator of everything, using only these as the actual examples that he gives? This is most likely referring to spiritual beings and their various powers and ranks. Um, there's a lot of talk in the Bible about angels, and we see them at, at different kind of levels or different, having different jobs and different ranks. And so that might have been a part of it. It also might be kind of including demonic powers. And um, we'll see that this, this fits a little bit, and we'll look at this more in, in chapter 2, because he's going to expand on this idea of those influences in chapter 2. Um, all through chapter 2, and I'll, I'll just read verse 8 to kind of give you an idea of what he's going to be going with. Um, in verse 8, he says, see, it, see to it that no one takes you captive. And then he ends that verse with according to the elemental spirits. And so he's going to kind of talk a lot about this. And he uses that term several times in chapter 2. Um, and he's, here he's talking about them uh, falling into tradition and kind of doing things because that's what we're supposed to do. And he's kind of going to say that there's actually things behind this and we need to fight against. And something else that I, another reason why I think he uses this example, again, that we'll kind of look at as we get further and deeper into the book, is that they may have been dealing also with a heresy where they believed that certain angels or maybe powers acted as kind of mediators between God and man. And uh, this is something that, a heresy that we see all throughout the church in, in, in various ways. And Paul wants to bring them back to the truth that whatever rank or spiritual, uh, spiritual being might have or what, what's out there, that Jesus created them all and they all ultimately answer to him. He is the ultimate authority. They must submit to him no matter what their rank might be. And also that we are connected to Christ through the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go through any other beings. We don't have to go through angels. We don't have to pray to any other idols or anything or any person. We pray directly. We go directly to Christ through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And I think that might be what he's trying to counter in this hymn that he's put into the text. So the passage for today, this is kind of setting the tone for what he's going to be getting into, that Jesus is Lord over all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. There is nothing that stands above him. He is preeminent over all. And that this is 
this should be an encouragement for us, right? That we go directly to him. And that also, of course, goes for anything in this world. Jesus is certainly over any authority or any power in this world, which can be an encouragement for our prayer life and what we pray for, no matter what's going on in the world or what it, things, how things seem so messed up sometimes, we can really pray to Christ for those situations, knowing that he has the ultimate authority over all things in this world and in the spiritual realm. And something to point out is that this is not to say that Jesus, a little bit of a side note, that Jesus did not create uh, demons directly, but rather that all spiritual powers are created by Jesus. And then later, some of them in their rebellion chose to turn against God. We don't have time to get into that. You can talk about it afterwards if you want. Um, and so, and in turning against God, they then became evil. Evil simply meaning against God, that they have turned against his way. And uh, they all, though, must submit to his authority, no matter what. All things were created by him, and all things were created through him. Again, Jesus did not come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. That baby Jesus was the full manifestation of God. He was there at creation, and it was through him that God made the heavens and the earth. John three, or sorry, John one three also emphasizes this, and there's many verses we could look at. John one three says, "All things were made through him, through Jesus Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made." It's a very clear, definitive statement. It's all from him. It's all through him. Everything. When we first have this understanding that he is truly creator of all things, really grasp that. Everything. Everything in this room, everything that's ever been, everything that ever will be, all exists through him and by him. When we really get this, when we enjoy a beautiful day, watch a sunset, enjoy a beautiful encounter or experience with our friends or loved ones, we really start to see his handiwork. And any time that we think on or simply enjoy the wonders of his creation, it leads us to worshiping and glorifying him as creator. So it's a powerful thing, an important thing to try and grasp. I want to read this really cool depiction I found in Proverbs chapter 8, 27 through 31. And actually, the, 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 the the, this is a personified image of wisdom is the way that it's, it's depicted here. But I believe that we see this in light of the New Testament as Christ, that Jesus Christ was the wisdom depicted as the one who was there at creation. So I'm going to read this to you because I found it to be a cool image to put into our minds when thinking about this. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress 
his command. When he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Now both here and in other Jewish wisdom literature, this personified divine wisdom that we see here was used always to describe the image of God. The image of God. Sound familiar? Sounds like Jesus. This is the image of God. Jesus Christ was there at creation. The proverb paints a picture of Jesus there and creation happening both through him and by him and with him. And what I really like about this depiction is that it's an image that really counters this kind of view of the mean, spiteful God. You know, I think of Bruce Almighty. That's a pretty old movie now, but where he says that God is like a mean kid with a magnifying glass. You know, that, wow, God just created us to torture us. He doesn't care about us. And, but here we see Christ there delighting in creation, delighting in the children of man. That's us. Jesus, full of joy at creation. He delights in this handiwork. He is both before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's another one that's really hard to fully grasp. That's an amazing fact. Now this term, all things were created, means more than simply that all things were created and that's it. It actually means that all things remain created. All things remain created. They hold together, as it says here in the ESV. Meaning, the presence of the universe rests on Christ's existence and will far more than the very laws of physics. We live in a Christ-centric, Christ-centered universe. That's what the Word of God tells us. Hebrews 1, 3 kind of chimes in on this topic. In the first half of the verse, it says, He is the radiance, talking about Jesus, that wasn't obvious. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think about that. <laughs> and first we can maybe think of like the great things, but I think the small things are what's really amazing. I think about the atom, something that's also invisible, something that will most likely never be able to see because it's much too small, and yet contains so much power. We can think about what happens when we have split the atom. All the power that's contained in something so small, and yet Jesus Christ is the one that holds it together. He contains every aspect from the tiniest things, from the atoms to the sun's, the, the moons, the planets, the galaxies. He holds everything in its place. 
It is the power of Jesus that holds it all together. Every star is exactly where he desires it to be. It is moving the way he desires it to move. Gravity, one of the least understood of the laws, works and acts as he designed it. And it continues to function by the power of his word. That's really hard for us to think about. And I don't know, do I believe that? You might be wondering. And maybe you might not, maybe you walk away, I don't, maybe you don't believe that. But I would encourage you to wrestle with it. Because either it's true or it's not. But that's what the word of God tells us. So don't come to me with your complaints. You can bring it to the word of God. What this means is that our reality, our very reality, would unravel without him. If there is no Jesus, our very reality cannot be sustained. Jesus Christ continually sustains all of creation. And literally without him, it would fall into chaos. That's what this is saying to us today. Now, I don't mean to be counter science or anything like that. Don't, don't, please don't take it that way. We want to continue to be seeking to find out the deeper truths of the universe as it's been given to us. But I would say that I believe that the laws and the discoveries that science is making is seeking to describe the laws of Christ that he put into motion, that he contains, that he sustains. That's what I would see here in the text. All things were created by him, through him, and ultimately for him. They were also created for him. Jesus is not only the agent of creation and the sustainer of creation, but also the goal of creation. Everything was created by him and for him. Ultimately, everything exists to honor him. To be a pleasure and a praise to the name of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.6 brings it back down to us. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he kind of puts them back to back to show it's kind of the same thing. We exist for him and by him. Our very existence and everyone's existence is only through him and we exist ultimately in order to honor and to praise and to glorify Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of our purpose. Among, along with all of creation. That all of creation testifies to the glory of God. That's the purpose. Now, before you go, well, that sounds crazy, and you think that you need to like, be like singing praise 24 hours a day, that would be a bit much for everyone around you, especially those around me, because I can't sing very well. That's not what it's saying. Because Jesus doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our songs. It's not what he needs. To give a famous quote, many of you will have heard this, Jesus is most glorified in us, and that's our purpose, to glorify him, and he is most glorified in us when we are most 
satisfied in him. I kind of expected one of you to finish that. I know there's some Piper fans in this room. That was John Piper, by the way. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So it's not about singing as, as loud and as long as we can. or It's not even about, as Sam pointed out last week, about doing as many good deeds, helping as many old ladies across the street as we can. That's not what it's about. It ultimately comes down to being satisfied in him. And that's good news. When we're talking about Jesus Christ as this grand image of creator of all things, all things being held together by him and existing for his glory, it sounds like, what can I do? What does he want from me? He just wants you to find your satisfaction in him. What does that mean? It means that we live... We exist with the purpose to glorify Jesus Christ, right? By whom and through whom we have our very existence. It also simply is letting yourself be loved by him, ultimately. It's first letting yourself be loved by him. You can't love him if you don't know how to be loved by him. It's when we are truly loved that we can then truly believe and trust in and with our whole heart love him back. This is our role in creation. Ultimately, to be loved by Jesus Christ and in doing so, finding our satisfaction in him because what are we really looking for in anything else? We're looking to be satisfied. Whatever we use as a means to seek it through status, education, money, power, sex, drugs. No matter what we choose, we're ultimately seeking satisfaction. We want something that fills us, that fulfills us. And I'm telling you, the great, mighty creator, Jesus Christ, sustainer of all creation, who wants to be glorified in us and through us, makes the means of that only simply by us finding our satisfaction in him, saying, I receive your love that you have for me, and I choose to seek my satisfaction in that love that you provide over anything else this world has to offer. That is what brings him the ultimate glory. So to conclude... This Jesus we see in the Bible, the one that we place our hope in, our trust in as our Lord and our Savior, the biblical Jesus is creator and maker of all things. And our existence is only our very existence down to the smallest parts of who we are is only possible by his will. And we've heard that Jesus loves us, that he wants to have a personal relationship with us, but I want you to be encouraged and challenged to not forget, as many of us have forgotten, just how incredible that really is. Because most of us in our daily lives, even as we're seeking Jesus, have no idea. We forget who he really is, that our very existence is sustained by him. 
To know him is to know the creator of all things. For everything from the furthest star to the building blocks of our own existence, all of it was created through him, by him, and continues to exist and be held together by the power of his will and word. And it is all made for his glory. And this Jesus Christ, out of all creation and out of time itself, has seen fit to delight in calling you a daughter or a son. How amazing it is to be known by him and to know him and to be loved and delighted in by him. So I encourage you to try and bring that on into your life this week. I invite the band to come back up as we prepare to close with the last song of worship together. And as they come up, I just want to close this time with prayer. Father, I thank you so much that you are an unknowable God. We can't even begin to fathom how great and mighty and endless and infinite you really are. And yet, through Jesus Christ, we have the manifestation, the image of you, so that we can know you and be known by you. I pray, Father, that you help us to walk in a way where we are aware of who you really are and your majesty and your greatness and are amazed that you also know us personally and love us intimately. May this ignite our hearts this week in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to stand as we close with worship.